Before you listen in, we'd like to warn you that this podcast does contain explicit language. Honestly, I used to go to the movies all the time because I had the AMC pass. And my favorite part about going to the movies was seeing Nicole Kidman do her spiel. And I would always clap because that's so fun. If I could do a good Nicole Kidman impersonation, I would totally try to recreate those commercials she does for AMC right now. Mostly because they cover a lot of the same ground I plan to in this intro. But I won't make you suffer through that. Just imagine that I'm saying this while wearing a shimmery suit and that there's a film projector lighting me from the back, making my hair all glowy. You see, I used to love going to the movies. I love the popcorn smell and that tingly feeling as the lights go down. For years, I would make sure to see at least every Oscar bait movie. But now, not so much. It's even harder to get me to see a live show. Am I the only one or is it a generational thing? I'm Lauren Barry and this is It's Generational. For this episode, I talked to our multi-generational panel about in-person entertainment, from rom-com movies to live clown shows. Sid Heller and Olivia De Laurentiis, a comedy duo on the cusp of the millennial and Gen Z generations, join the show along with baby boomer stand-up Julia Scotti and Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts, Myron Kaplan, a Gen X cusper. But uh, I did cancel my movie pass when I saw Avatar because I was sad that they made me sit that long. I am afraid of public shootings, so I don't go to the movies. That's uh, that. That's sad. It's very sad. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I know. I understand it, but it, it is yeah. very sad. I am a fan of the local LA culture of live shows because um, I moved away and for a little bit and really missed like the wealth of uh, amazing talent here that like, you know, people are actively like trying to, to raise a profile in, in showbiz or whatever, but then you just get like these incredible comedians who are just like, I'm just, just doing a show at dynasty typewriter for 50 people. And it's going to be great. So I like to go out to live shows and that kind of thing. And I play music. So I go to live bands and see bands and things like that. And as far as the, there's this big, the thing with like people whipping out their phones to live record, which you don't get as much at, at comedy shows. They kind of ask you like, please don't mm-hmm. record this and post it on the internet. This is, this is my, my tight seven. I am, you know, this, I'm putting this on Netflix next month. Please don't do that. But some places where it's just folks don't have the sleekness of a production crew to be like, give us your phones before you walk in. Or people are taking pictures. It's just like the audience is like a sea of phones. And that's depressing. Um, I, I did grow up like when I was a preteen and teen. I followed all the 90s alti bands. I had like stacks of concert tickets. And it was just like, yeah, Weezer. And yeah, offspring. <laughs> you know, people just like hit each other in the face in mosh pits and you called it I a day. I love getting hit in the face in a mosh pit. I I I met Iggy Pop in a mosh pit and it was the best thing that's ever happened and I can die now. And we were like he this he just kept falling over we were like this guy is not okay. And then we were like, "Oh fuck, that's Iggy Pop." And then when all the lights came on, he was totally okay. Like he wasn't fucking he was totally like just had a normal conversation with us and I was like, "Well, I can die." <laughs> I mean, that is a really cool story. I've never met Iggy Pop in a mosh pit, but I have made some really great connections at live shows. There's nothing quite like hearing a crowd surfer's life story right after they fall in front of you at a Rage Against the Machine concert. But there seem to be more and more reasons for me not to go out. There's the pandemic, expensive tickets, my friends busy and hard to coordinate schedules. Sometimes it just doesn't seem worth it to me. 
When Olivia mentioned that she doesn't go to movies because of mass shootings, I realized that I started going to movie theaters less after the 2012 Colorado shooting at a screening of The Dark Knight Rises. I was in college then, and I was planning on seeing it with a group of my friends, but we canceled our plans. Olivia and I aren't the only ones who seem to avoid going to theaters lately. According to a January report in IndieWire, theatrical attendance has declined by 50% over the past four years. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic temporarily and sometimes permanently shut down movie houses, audiences were getting smaller. Some live events have been struggling too. This year, tickets for Coachella, one of the biggest music festivals in the world, failed to sell out in advance for the first time since 2010. I read that in the San Diego Union-Tribune. So, you know, it's interesting just being just being on a, on a campus, me and two of my colleagues, we started a just a pop culture club like once a week. We'll discuss a different pop culture, you know, television episode or movie. And we did uh, Reservation Dogs, which is amazing. Right. But it was like two weeks ago and like, you know, students showed up but like so many more students like, you know, they forgot about it or they haven't seen it again. It's just like there's so much content. That's Dr. Ryan Pohl, a Gen Xer who writes about entertainment and pop culture for Pop Matters magazine. He's also the author of Aquaman and the War Against Oceans and a professor at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago. It's like that paradox of choice, right? Like, again, bad analogy, but like you get overwhelmed going looking at cereal at a large supermarket choice, right? Like psychologically, when there's so much available, I mean, maybe we'll get into this, but to me, like this is the future of like cultural content is like having really smart, responsible, diverse people curating content. You know, the industry of curation against this flood of of commodities coming our way that, you know, it's hard to map our way around it with or through. Michael Tran of the University of California, Los Angeles, a co-author of the Hollywood Diversity Report, helped us explore data researchers have collected about both theatrical films and the plethora of streaming projects that people can enjoy right from their homes. Even though people like to talk about, oh, you know, the movie theaters are dying, it's going to be all about streaming from now on, they aren't like perfect equals in in the film industry space. Tran explained that the different ways we measure film and streaming consumption can impact what projects get funded and eventually what ends up on the big screen. Representation behind the camera is has been slower to change than representation in front of the camera. Um, and we definitely would like to see that changed. One of the things that we measured in this report you might find is that um, there's also a disparity in terms of budgets. If you look at the size of the budgets, white women, white men, and directors of color get, the only ones that get consistently large budgets and lots of opportunities are white male directors. Like gender is actually a big predictor of this too. So um, women directors, you like consistently get the lowest budgets. That, that has to change. In terms of what you were asking about narrative, um, we of course wholeheartedly support the idea of creatives of color you know, female creatives telling their own stories. Because that's really, all, at the end of the day, what the audience wants to see. Our report itself focuses on hiring decisions. Um, so we really don't comment about, like, the content of things. But, of course, we have lots of aspirations. <laughs> While women and people of color remain underrepresented both in front of and behind the camera, the Hollywood Diversity Report found that people of color actually accounted for the majority of opening weekend domestic ticket sales for six of the top ten films released in theaters last year, and for half of the sales of the seventh film. It also found that films that had diverse casts performed better than films that did not. 
Recently, an analysis of box office winners by Reuters also found that moviegoers have been steadily losing overall interest in the rom-com genre, a box office powerhouse in the 1990s, since the early 2000s. Last October, Billy Eichner's universal-backed LGBTQ romantic comedy Bros was released and marketed as one of the first queer-centered romantic comedies from a major motion picture studio. However, it didn't meet box office expectations. Variety has offered possible reasons for the lukewarm reception, including homophobia, mismatched marketing, and competition from streaming. Our very own panelist, Julia Scotti, was in the film, which was loved by critics despite its box office struggle. I worked with Billy. Really? Was, how, I, was I, so funny. I was on bros with him. I did it. I did it. <gasps> oh, my God. Oh, my God. That movie, movie was nobody, so good. Nobody saw it. <laughs> it was so, I saw it. I, went, I saw it in theaters, and I had a lovely time. Reuters report also mentioned how studios have been investing less in mid-range budget films, like romantic comedies. For example, Variety reported that in the last weekend of April, the Super Mario Brothers movie led the box office, and that Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, an adaptation of a well-known Judy Bloom novel, had a disappointing opening. Super Mario Brothers had a budget of around $100 million, compared to the $30 million budget of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. According to the Hollywood Diversity Report, action movies are the most common type of theatrical release film, while comedies dominate streaming. I asked Michael Tran how budgets differ for these two types of projects and how that might impact whether people actually watch them. Like you said, action movies tend to be these kind of big budget, big ticket, must-see movie kind of blockbusters. You know, it's not purely just an action thing, but yeah, that's that's the tendency. And it is a fact nowadays that um, theatrical movies tend to have bigger budgets than streaming movies. That's something I also didn't mention. If the progress towards, you know, diversity is stalling in theatrical, it means, you know, people of color and women not getting access to the biggest budgets, the biggest, you know, prestige projects. Yeah, and this is also more speculative, but like the, the prevalence of comedies in streaming is because you're watching it in a small screen in your own home it's much more difficult to tackle big spectacle films or like kind of hard hitting dramas in that. I'd also like to add one thing I'm worried about is that there's also more audience segmentation in, um, in streaming, you know, it's, it's much more like cable where audiences get to choose what they want to watch. Whereas with theatrical, it was more like broadcast television where, you know, this is the movie that everybody saw. So I worry that if you can only go to streaming for diversity, there's a lot of ways for people to opt out of the kind of societal benefits of that. Bridge Minos Leibowitz is the showrunner for Gordita Chronicles. She's also worked on One Day at a Time in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and she told me how she's experienced some of this tension firsthand. What I've been told is that comedies are really difficult to sell internationally, and because comedy is so culturally specific, I feel more and more that We've underestimated our audiences in that regard, especially with subtitles. You know, people are watching all kinds of international dramas with subtitles and they can get on board. But that's what I've been told is that like comedy doesn't sell internationally. Therefore, studios are more inclined to make money on dramas and drama Ds, you know, shows that uh, can have a broader audience, which blows my mind because I feel like there are so many 
like the office, for example, has traveled to hundreds of places. I'm telling exaggeration, but like tens of countries have their own version of the office. And the same thing with um, Everybody Loves Raymond has traveled the world with different revivals and reboots. So I is that accurate? I don't know, but it's what I get the sense from the people in the offices who have the money <laughs> that that's, you know, that's sort of driving what what's being made. How does marketing play into this? It's like this big old investment. You know, the marketing budget is usually uh, the same size as the production budget um, because everything hinges on getting people into the theaters, especially early on for that movie. And then the, you know, the success of the whole project kind of sinks or swim based on that marketing push and the audience response. With streaming platforms, you don't really get the same kind of marketing push you don't get the same kind of like do or die moment and you have no idea what the audience response is. Only the platform really does and they don't publicize it at all. So like with that, you can really see the kind of incentive for streaming platforms to do this. At first, there was the conversation about like, oh, you're a creative of color. Now you have all these opportunities. Does Netflix tell you what to say and do in your in your movies? They said, no, they gave us so much freedom. They gave you so much freedom because the risk is lower because if they fail, they just bury you in the algorithm. <laughs> and yeah, that's another thing to keep in mind when we look at this like split in diversity between the two different sectors. Things might seem a bit precarious, at least for movie theaters, but I've got good news. People are still leaving home to see entertainment. It is not the type of entertainment I would have guessed, but I'm happy regardless. My livelihood depends on live performances, and it it frightens me. And I and, and I've said this to colleagues who are in, from my generation of comic too. We go to a comedy club or we go to a theater. We don't see replacement audience members coming from your age group. And again, it doesn't affect me because I'll be gone soon. But for the up and coming comics that you know that are trying to build a career, uh, they need you there. They need you in the audience you guys have to i know it's uh, i know the, i know the gun things freaks you out but oh, man there's sad. a pretty huge i mean there's like a pretty huge alt comic scene of yeah. like we have a lot of friends who are like clowns and like, like they, they do and their shows stuff. like sell out yeah there's a lot Wait, i might know I, I might know some of those those clowns actual clowns yeah, yeah, well, like they clowning. Do, they do clowning, like it's like a form of like it's like alt comedy. Yeah, that's but great like, news. I did not know about the clowns. Alt, I'm sorry, I'm excited about that. Yeah, like it's called clowning. It's like physical comedy. It's like huge. Like the alt comedy scene in LA specifically, the live, and New York, live alt comedy in New York is fucking huge. Yeah, I didn't know about the clowns, but I know about the alt. So what do they do? Are they, they just do regular traditional clown stuff? No, no, they it's just like, do sketches, but it's a lot of physical comedy. And like they went to fucking clown school or whatever it's a whole scene like i was more in the circusy side so the circus clowning is circusy but it's like you learn physical comedy and there's like it's brute actually it's really brutal when i first sat down with this panel i did not expect that i was going to be doing research on clowns i'm happy that i did did you know that both sasha baron cohen of borat fame and english actress emma thompson have both trained under philippe gallier known as the clown master well now you do there's also a newer wave of clowning becoming popular, as Sid and Olivia have mentioned. Live shows can be held in places such as abandoned zoo enclosures. That's according to the Los Angeles Times. If you can't make it to one, you can check out Natalie Palomides' Nate, a one-man show on Netflix. 
or the Eric Andre show on Comedy Central. What Eric Andre does yeah. probably would be considered. Like, I think our our generation especially, I feel like we've been absurd. fed so many things that are really standard and structured and like, this is how a joke is set up. And I think we're all sort of in in a way used to that and then also so beaten up by certain elements of life that I think we gravitate a lot towards things that are absurdist and things that break the structure of how things are supposed to be. And things that are just, I yeah, love yeah. that. I love that, yeah. that you, and you're challenging the rules of comedy too, which I, yeah. I love that. I think that's a, I think that's a, it's a very healthy thing to do. I'll catch you guys later, but right now I really want to check out some of these clowns. They sold me on it. Thanks for listening to It's Generational. We'd also like to thank our panel guests, Sid Heller, Olivia De Laurentiis, Myron Kaplan, and Julia Scotti for joining us, as well as our experts, Michael Tran of UCLA, Ryan Pohl of Northeastern Illinois University, and Gordita Chronicles showrunner Bridge Pino Sleepowitz. Our theme music is by Zaptra. Check out our other episodes featuring this panel. We'll talk about what we want TV to look like in the future and how funny has changed. This episode was produced by Mallory Samara and me, Lauren Berry. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review. You can listen to It's Generational on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts.